Father, thank you for the gift that you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the proclamation, the declaration, the celebration that is, is possible because of what Christ did for us. Thank you for the precious picture of Emmanuel, God with us. So today I pray you would fill our eyes full of who he truly was and who he truly is. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Um, uh, if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to get to John chapter 19. John chapter 19 is where we're going to be together this morning. As you're turning there, though, I want you to have a little conversation with the people around you. I'm going to ask you a, a question, just kind of commits with each other and, and have the conversation and answer this question for you. What, what are your favorite Christmas traditions in your family? What are some of the things you love to do as family during the Christmas holiday uh, that is unique to your family or maybe not unique to your family? Maybe, maybe it's a tradition that many people have. Talk amongst yourselves just for a couple minutes. What are some of your favorite traditions? So what I should have done is asked, what are your least favorite traditions? And kids, you would have the opportunity just to light them up. Um, so we, we have a, a number of traditions in our family when it comes to uh, Christmas. Um, most of it has to do with order, right? So, so what order do things get done and when do you open your stockings? When? Who goes next? Um, all of that stuff. We, we have a very specific order, and I don't know if you've experienced it, but it's changed at least, not, 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 not order hasn't changed. The timing has certainly changed as the kids got older, right? I mean, when they were little, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning, and my oldest would be sitting on the bed like, it's Christmas! I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> Go back to bed. And now, it's last couple of years, my wife and I have been like, are they ever going to get up? What is going on? So, so things change a little bit, but, but the, the traditional order of events is similar, somewhat the same as previous years. We we, our family, gets up. The kids aren't allowed down the stairs until mom and dad are downstairs. We have coffee and orange juice because, you know, that is godly. And so we get our coffee and orange juice, and then we let the kids come down, and then uh, everybody's like, oh, this is wonderful. And then we do stockings. It's always youngest to oldest. Uh, we give gifts same way, youngest to oldest. We want the youngest to uh, have a focus on giving the gift instead of receiving the gift. And that youngest is now 17. If she hasn't learned it yet, she ain't ever going to learn it. So we do that, and then when that's done, we... Actually, so I grew up a little bit differently. This is the one tradition I took from my family for Christmas. I, I want to make sure that we get a good healthy meal at the beginning of Christmas because you're just going to eat junk all day. And so I spend a little while uh, in the kitchen making breakfast for everybody. Uh, a breakfast, um, I mean, it is like the rounded uh, health, most amazing. It, it's fried dough. It, there's nothing beneficial about it at all. We go through loaves of bread and powdered sugar and jelly and cinnamon, and I'm hungry and it's making my stomach do funny things right now. So... That's Christmas for us, right? There's, there's, a, there's an order of events that happens. Um, after that, we take a good, good, good Christmas nap. Usually that has to do with the sugar coma, probably, but we love our Christmas naps, right? So you have an order. You have an order in your traditions at home. You have an, an order, and things just keep happening, and the traditions have the word then. We do this, and then we do this. We do this, and then we do that. John chapter 19 Verse 1 starts like that. Then, it's as far as we're getting, so it's going to be one of those messages. It's never good when the pastor stops after the first word. Then, there is so much that has gone before that word in John 19.1, then. 
right? We talked about a little bit about it last week, how you read through the Old Testament and you get through the minor prophets and you're doing Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and when it's done and it ends, everything goes dark. It's quiet, it's silent, and there's nothing happening. And you get the sense of waiting. A college Bible study we did on, um, what night was that? That would have been Thursday night. Uh, we were kind of talking through some of this and, and, and talking about how when you read through the Old Testament, if you're reading it with honesty, you're reading it with integrity, you're beginning at the beginning, you're getting to Malachi, you have read so many things about the one that is to come that you end the book of Malachi with the question, where is he? Because he hasn't shown up yet. So as we talked about last week, the, the darkness remains, the intertestamental period remains until that star shows up in the sky. And we did the cinematic thing last week where you zoom back and zoom in, you go through the mountains and the valleys, and you, you get into this little podunk town called Bethlehem, and as you come into Bethlehem, there's, there's a manger, a feeding trough, and there's, there's two teenagers probably kneeling before it, all glassy-eyed, all, all freaked out like new parents usually are, but this is in particular a little bit more freaky because they're young and, and, and there's some extenuating circumstances with the birth of this child, right? And so, so they're looking into the feeding trough with this, this terror, this fear, and last week uh, I, I created not so little a buzz when I said as the camera peers over their shoulders at the ugly baby, and you were like, oh, he called Jesus ugly. I'm just being consistent. You guys know what I think about newborns. I made it abundantly clear months ago, even when my granddaughter was born, all newborns are ugly. It's being consistent. Now, here's a question. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. How could you call him ugly? Because he was a newborn. And, and, and it's very clear in Scripture, Isaiah 53 tells us, there was nothing special about his appearance. He, he wasn't somebody who was so different than everybody else. He didn't come like those crazy artistic pieces you see with, like, the halo. You know, baby Jesus didn't have a halo when he was born. You know that, right? And, and I know, away in the manger, no, no, no crying he made. He was a baby baby. You know what baby babies do? Cry a lot. And so Jesus was a a real baby, a real person. Jesus came as a human, not an undercover boss human. Okay? He came as a real human. Now, now get this. We don't get any of this in Scripture. There's some tradition that's a little, mean. I don't know about that, so I'll use your sanctified imagination, but he grew up like every other child in the day. Every other child. So, so think about that, right? Little Jesus with the sniffles. The upset... Tummy. Was he the little dude who ran back into mom and dad's room after he had been put into bed saying, I'm thirsty, I need a drink. Was that him? Was he like that? I don't know. What did his laugh sound like? What did la baby laugh. Okay, so newborn's ugly. Baby laughs, amazing. Right, right now my granddaughter laughs. She sounds like a, a combination between a pterodactyl and a dolphin. It's like this really cool thing. But what did Jesus' laugh sound like? What, what did he think was funny? What did he, what did he think was funny? Did he, did he like to go outside and play? Or was he more of an indoorsy kid who liked to read? Think about this one. What was it like 
to be a childhood friend of Jesus. To run the streets of Nazareth with your, your little eight-year-old posse. Um, any of you have 11-year-olds in here? Any of you 11-year-olds years old? I will tell you right now, I believe 11 years old is probably the hardest age. Okay? I would think that. Moms and dads, look at your 11-year-old and remember this. Jesus was 11 once. It's so important that we get this. There's a heresy called docetism that was squashed. Uh, I think it was the Council of Chalcedon in 400-ish A.D. that tried to say that Jesus wasn't really human. He was just kind of make-believe. He was really God. He was just a ghost kind of guy. And there's a significant problem with that. And Paul tells us that if Christ has not been raised, literally and physically, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. So if it was make-believe, we're all in trouble, guys. If it was a ghost, we're sunk. The reality is Jesus was really human began his ministry. He's teaching, and the beginning of Mark tells us he's teaching, but, but his teaching is a little different because he's teaching as one who has authority, which is unlike anybody else who teaches. He's healing. He's casting out demons. Um, he is uh, even raising the dead, but in the middle of all of this ministry that he is doing, you find it regularly throughout the Gospels, make mention of, he's tired. Jesus was tired. Can you relate to that? He was hungry. He was sad. He was thirsty. He was angry. He was happy. Just, just like, just like every, everybody else. And, and as he grows, as he matures, more and more people begin to hear about him and begin to, to, to want to be near him, right? So, so Mark chapter 2 says that there were so many people who were trying to get near to him that they started crowding in on him as he was inside this home. They were pressed up against the wall, jammed in like sardines, and there was, there was no way to fit anybody else in there because the crowds are growing bigger and bigger every day of his ministry. Why? Because a lot of people are hearing about this man, Jesus, who, who might just be able to heal. He might just be able to heal. And so actually the story of Mark chapter 2 is that story with, with the dude who, who needs healing and his four crazy friends. And just for the record, all of us need four crazy friends. These guys were awesome, right? Can't get them to see Jesus. We're going to get them to see Jesus. I don't care. Nobody's stopping us. We're getting him to see Jesus. So they climb up to the top of the roof. They cut a hole in the roof, and they lower the dude down. And I can imagine in my mind's eye the guy who's laying on the cot saying, guys, too much, too much, just a little too much. I'm like, God, oh, dude, we got you. Don't worry. Drops him right in front of Jesus. So now Jesus has no way to not see him. See, his popularity was growing because people were thinking, maybe, maybe he can bring healing. You get that in Mark chapter 5 with the story of Jairus. Jairus shows up after Jesus has been teaching for a while. With the angst of a daddy whose daughter is on her deathbed. Jesus, I've heard you might be able to do something about this, and I need you to. I've heard you might be able to heal. It's a fascinating story because Jesus begins making his way 
to Jairus' home. And the crowds are continuing to press in on him, right? These very narrow streets, cobblestone streets, are, are just packed with people. And even as he cuts out of the town and he tries to go to the, 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 villi, the, the little valley pass that's between the hills, between the small mountains, he's, he's trying to make his way that way. The crowds are just, just staying as close to him as possible. Disciples are doing their best impression of the Secret Service at the time, trying to make a way for him, right? But Jesus, is, it, there's no way through these crowds. There are so many people. And suddenly Jesus stops. He stops in the middle of the crowd. Have you ever been in a pressing crowd and have somebody stop? It's suffocating. He stops, and the disciples are like, what's going on? And Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Look around. The better question would be, who didn't touch you? Everybody has touched you. No, 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 no. There's, there's somebody here. Somebody here who intentionally touched me. As you look at the story, you find that there is a woman who has had this issue of blood for many years. She's been to doctor after doctor after doctor. She has spent her entire life savings. The, the combination of those two things make us believe that perhaps, perhaps the doctors had figured out there was no fix for her. They had no answers for her. But if we just take, keep taking her money, we're doing just fine. And now she's destitute. She has spent her entire life savings on trying to find a, a cure. And when she hears about this man, Jesus, that he's near, she thinks, you know, if I could just get close enough to him to, to grab the hem of his garment, if I could just touch his clothes, then maybe I could be made well. And, and, and as she makes her way, and remember, the crowds are just packed in on Jesus. The, the cobblestones are really rough, and you get the picture. She is crawling through the crowds, just trying to make her way a little closer, a little closer, and she gets close to him, and she reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, and he knows. She thought, you know, this, this one, he's different than all the rest. He's different than all the rest. So they, words getting out that he might be the one who'd be able to heal. Words getting out that he might be able to cast out demons. You've got this Gentile woman. A Gentile woman of all people comes to Jesus and says, listen, my, my, my daughter has an unclean spirit. Can you help? Maybe Mark chapter 9. Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration. And he walks into this, this hubbub, this, this commotion that's happening, and his disciples are standing there, and there's, the crowd seems to be turning on the disciples, and, and, and there's a fella who, who's just, just, just almost angry. And Jesus is like, what, what is going on? And he says, listen, teacher, I brought my son here to see you. See, he's, he's possessed by a demon, and this demon continues to throw him down, and, and, and he grinds his teeth, and he foams at the mouth, and he gets rigid, and nobody can do anything to help him, and I thought maybe, just maybe, you could do something to help him. Maybe you could do something to help him. Word's getting out that he might be able to revive the dead. And John 11 is an amazing chapter in Scripture. We've got word getting to Jesus that one of his good friends, Lazarus, 
Lazarus is, is sick. He's not doing well, and, and it, it's, it's not looking good. So Jesus, would you come and help him? And, and Jesus doesn't get there right away. And the disciples are upset about that. Well, Jesus, what, what, we'll just go. He says, no, it's so that you can see my power. That's why I delayed. Jesus finally gets to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and, 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 and when he is there, um, Mary and Martha approach him in sadness. He begins to weep. He, there's this overwhelming emotion in him that his friend has passed, right? And as the people look at him, after hearing everything that he had done up to this moment, their judgment is this. If he can make blind people see, he could have certainly helped his friend and kept him from dying. Why didn't he? So, so look, what that means, just, just don't miss this, what that means, there is a transition here in their beliefs. In this moment, they believe that Jesus is able to do these things. So they've heard these things, they're wondering these things, they, they think this, this might be the one. This is a different kind of guy, right? And you know they think that when you get to the next chapter in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Jesus is on top of a donkey, and he's riding into Jerusalem, and the people are losing their minds. This is the one! This is the Messiah we've been waiting for. He's going to come. He's going to get rid of our enemies. He's going to overthrow the Romans. And this is our moment of peace and tranquility. This is the moment where our kingdom will explode on the world scene. This is what we have been waiting for. Words got out that Jesus is something pretty amazing. Then, but that's not the John 19 then yet. A few short days later, one of his own disciples betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Probably the, the foreman of disciples, Peter, denies that he has had anything to do with Jesus three times. As Jesus is being questioned and accused, all of the friendly faces that had been around him have now abandoned him. He's arrested, he's accused, he is ridiculed, he is interrogated, he is slandered, he is disrespected, he is beaten, he is spit upon, he is cursed. And then, we're still not to John 19.1 yet. Because then Pilate, thinking he knows his way out of this really sticky situation, grabs this fella out of a jail cell named Barabbas, and he puts him up in front of the crowd. He puts Jesus up in front of the crowd and says, listen, I have a custom. You get to pick one of these guys to release. So it's either going to be Jesus or Barabbas, the murderer. Which one would you like? And in his brain, he's like, I outsmarted them. And every time you think that, it goes the other way, doesn't it? Because immediately the crowd begins screaming for Barabbas. We'll take Barabbas. You crucify Jesus. So, so, so just for a moment, put the sandals on. Put your first century sandals on. And stand in that dusty street.
Look up at the palace. Look at the one who's standing on the stairs. Who, who is he? Because all the way up to this point, all the way up to this point, there was this belief that had begun to grow that, that he was the one who could bring healing. He was the one who could cast out demons. He was the one who could raise the dead. He was the one. He was the one we've been waiting for, the whole Old Testament I'm talking about. He was the Messiah, the Christ. This is the one, but now he stands there. Just looks like a normal guy. Now we get to John 19.1. Then, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe. The soldiers kept coming. Coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And slapping him in the face. So Pilate went outside again and he said to the crowd, Look, I'm, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. the chief priests, the temple servants, saw him, they began to shout, crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate responded, you know, you take him and crucify him yourself. I, I find no grounds for charging him. Oh no, we have a law, the Jews replied to him. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself to be the son of God. When Pilate heard that statement, he was more afraid than ever. I just want to pause there for a moment just to give you a little glimpse. If you're standing there in your first century sandals and you are looking up at what is happening on the stairs in front of the palace, you're hearing the words of Pilate, behold the man, you're watching the mob mentality just start to take over and everybody's starting to scream crucify and then the accusation is shouted, he has made himself to be the son of God and you watch Pilate's face change. Why? Because in that instant, it gets ratcheted up. In that instant, it's no longer, he cut me off in traffic, we're in appellate court. It's no longer, he didn't pay me for the sheep that he took from me. It's no longer, this guy went into the temple, tore things up, and we expect him to pay for the repairs. No, no, it's bigger than that. Now it's, he's made himself to be the son of God. And when Pilate hears that and sees how serious this is, the thing that comes into his mind is something his wife said to him. Pilate's wife, Mrs. Pilate, said, have nothing to do with this guy. I have a bad feeling. This is not going to end well. Have nothing to do with him. Verse 8, Pilate heard what they were accusing Jesus of. He was more afraid than ever. Verse 9, he went back into the headquarters and he asked Jesus, where are you from? 
But Jesus didn't give him an answer. So Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. So from that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. And he sat down in the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement. In Aramaic, it's called Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover. And it was about noon. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. shouted, no, take him away. Crucify him. Pilate asked, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. So then Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. In a few moments, very few moments we have left together, I want to challenge you to do exactly what Pilate asks you to do. In fact, he doesn't ask, he commands you to do. Pilate has no authority. He had no authority over Jesus. He had no authority in that day. He has no authority over us. However, I think we would be wise to listen to these two commands. The first one is this. Behold the man. Stop and stare at the man he is pointing to. Even though he's doing it tongue-in-cheek, even though he's doing it with a spirit of mockery, there's value in stopping for a moment to stare at this one who stands on the steps with a crown of thorns on his head. And please understand, the crown of thorns, it, 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 yes, it hurt. There's no question. But the intentionality and the purpose of the crown of thorns was not to torture him more. It was to mock him. Think about it this way. You claim to be king, I'm going to pull out a Burger King uh, crown, and I'm going to put it on your head. So, so there, there is Jesus, the king of the Jews, wearing a Burger King crown. And the, the purple robe that is around his shoulder, that's, purple is the color of royalty, yes. This robe is nothing special. It's something that somebody would have worn and gotten dirty along the way. Perhaps it had even been discarded already. And these guys grab it and throw it over his shoulder and hand him a, a stick and be like, yeah, be a good king now. And he stands there being mocked. From the flogging, he's torn up. Don't look away. He came for you. As we, as we look at him from, from, from Union Bridge, Maryland in 2022, and we look at him and we hear Pilate point to him in a mocking tone say, Behold the man! It really should cause a reminder to come up in our heads and in our hearts. That it should be a, a phrase with a little bit of familiarity with it. Maybe even an echo from something that happened earlier. And if you understand the book of John, what you know is that John wrote the book, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. When he starts, in the beginning, everybody reading that book would have immediately gone back to Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. He's trying to draw our attention back to the very beginning 
of time when, when God created the sun, the moon, the stars, the birds, the fish, the plants, the animals, and then on day six, the crowning glory of his creation, God made Adam into his image, and he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and he became this, this living being, right? And you know the creation story. <coughs> Excuse me. This is all in my cough drop hole. <coughs> oh, that is not recommended. Um, so, so, uh, so creation, and he's doing, he does creation, yep, okay, there we go. And you know the story of creation, how after every day, right, he stands back and he's like, good, 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 good. But he gets to day six. After creating Adam in his own image, he says, oh, so very You might actually be able to say, he said, behold the man that I have created. This is now God, the creator, evaluating his workmanship. The proud creator taking delight in his creation. But that doesn't last long. Because Adam and Eve decide that they know better. They want more. And they rebel and sin against God. So now, instead of the voice of God saying, oh, so very good, behold the man, it has changed now to, where is the man? Adam, where'd you go? Adam, what, what have you done? Uh, what Adam had done was sinned, and the result of that sin would be not just a thorn-infested ground that would make his work hard, but it was also the breaking, the fracturing of a relationship with God. So that relationship is now forever broken. They are forever separated. Death has now become a reality that we all have to face. Sacrifices were instituted and introduced so that there was a way to appease God's holy wrath. But thank God it doesn't stop in Genesis chapter 3. What God does is he says, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Eve, in my mercy, because God is merciful. There is one son who is going to come, and he's going to make right everything that has gone wrong. Now, the offspring of Eve is going to come, and it's going to crush the very power of sin. And that, that's, what, that's what leads you, if you read, honestly, the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, that's what leads you to get to Malachi and be like, but, but it hasn't come yet. Where is he? Where is this promised one who's going to come make all things Right? When is it going to happen? When you look in the eastern sky, you see a star. You hear the angelic choir praising God at the top of their lungs. You go to the stable and you see a baby, a savior, a son wrapped up in clothes. And the word Son of God, the Word takes on flesh and lives among us. So now God himself is living like us. He is living with us. He is living for us. So please, behold the man. This is so important. Verse 7. Verse 7 is, 
is the Jews are making their accusations. They say, according, we have a law, and according to that law, he's got to die because he has made himself the son of God. When I'm telling you, do not look and behold the man who has made himself the son of God. No, this man that you are beholding, no, 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 it's not that. They got it backwards. Behold, the son of God has made himself a man. And because the Son of God has made himself a man, he is here to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness that you and I cannot fulfill. But, but as a man, Jesus Christ could fulfill it. He came to be our substitute. He came in the fullness of time to redeem those people under the law as he was born under the law himself. There, there, there's, 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 there's so much to understand with this and so little time. And it's so packed full of truth and so incredibly simple. Behold the man, the one who stands on the stairs isn't just a, a, a poor, unfortunate soul who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. The one who stands on the stairs is standing there with intentionality. You know why? Because he's not just behold the man. There's another behold. Did you see it? Verse 14. Behold your king. See, the Son of God made himself to be a man. And I know, again, Pilate's trying to mock people. He's trying to mock Jesus. But again, we should listen. This is our king, a king who left behind his throne to live with his people, a king who willingly took the place of those people who had rejected him to be king, a king who has come not just with authority, but with an offer of hope, an extension of peace, an invitation to know real freedom, absolute victory. A king, and only the only king who could offer redemption through his death, burial, and resurrection. Behold Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us, the one who came to be the Savior of the world. That's our intention with communion. And so this morning, we're going to take a few moments to celebrate communion with one another. These are just pictures of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Nothing salvific in it. It's not going to save you by eating a cracker and drinking juice. Nothing magical about it. But it's a picture that is supposed to serve as a reminder to you of the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ. So if you are here this morning and, and you aren't a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you just to stay in your seat for a few moments. We're not going to make a big deal of it. We're not going to shine a light on you. We're not going to jump up and down. None of that. We take this seriously. This is an opportunity for the followers of Jesus to reflect on the picture that Jesus has left for them. So if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, I'm going to invite you to celebrate communion with us in a moment. I'll pray. You can leave your seat to the right and come up to the front of your seat section. There's tables here that have communion trays on them. Each um, compartment of the communion tray has two cups stacked on top of each other. Make sure you take both and return to your seat up the other side. If you have a gluten intolerance, we have uh, the gluten-free uh, communion elements on a table right there in front of the sound table. I encourage you, when you return to your seat, take a few moments to pray, reflect, and intentionally behold the man who died for your sins. And then we'll take communion together. Father, thanks for today. The great gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Would you capture our imagination, our thoughts? And Father, I pray that we would not be distracted by anything else, but simply 
behold you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be dismissed to receive the elements for communion.